I do think it said so much that people from trolley guy to Sisto who tried to prevent something or tried to help and not run away said so much about our city. With these endless inquiries that keep being thrown at the ABC, with the rounds of budget cut after budget cut and the sniping and the complaints going on endlessly, it's just an outrage to me and, uh, and shows a deep insensitivity to how highly regarded the ABC is. Did a journalist really actually inspect your hair, Ruth? Absolutely she did. <laughs> The killer tomato. I think you've got lovely hair. Oh, thank you, Caroline. I did that once to Phyllis Stiller because she was actually wearing a wig. (laughs) And she made a comment about the wig and I said, oh, that's that's your real hair. And she said, honey, come and touch it. And I pulled it and I almost pulled the (laughs) wig off. What has happened to our society that it's too much of an effort to vote on actual election day? We know that you're Kerry O'Brien, you know, the hard-hitting political interviewer, but these were such tender moments. That change of pace when you had the opportunity, what did that afford you as a journalist? Well, for a start, they were the things that kept me sane and kept me going at 7.30 for longer than I otherwise might have. And the reason I called it Real Celebrity is because there is so much bullshit celebrity in the world. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Hello everyone and welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger, a weekly podcast of news, views and reviews and general chit-chat with me, Corey Perkin, and my very good friend, journalist and new kitchen owner and queen of the Scrabble board, Caroline Wilson. Hi, Caro. I've got a particularly good curry recipe for you this week, Corey, later on, but excitingly we have another guest this week and another book as well. Oh, we're so delighted. Before we introduce our special guest, we've got a lot to discuss on the show, so stick with us, Potties. Crazy days at the ABC, Caro. Of course, last week's tragic attack in Burke Street. As you said, you have a recipe, I have a telly show, and our special guest has a crush or indeed a non-crush of the week. Speaking of our guest, Caro and I are joined today by one of Australia's finest journalists, a man who has won six Walkley Awards over his impressive and eventful 50-year career. He is a father of six, grandfather of many. He is a recent sea changer, and now he is the author of a new autobiography. Welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger, Kerry O'Brien. Corey, thanks for having me. Lovely Caroline. to have you. Congratulations on a memoir, which is just gets to the point, really, doesn't it, in it's, typical journalistic fashion? Well, that was more the publishers. I was with my wife, Sue. I was trying to come up with something really clever and, uh, and slightly mysterious, and they just kept bringing me back to basics, which was that most people walking into bookshops want to glance at the cover of a book and work out what it is. <laughs> well, it, it's a lovely familiar cover. Um, Corrie's a bit disappointed there are no more shots inside the book of you, Kerry. We but... wanted baby Kerry and teenage Kerry. Well, baby Kerry and teenage Kerry uh, photos were wiped out in the 74 Brisbane floods when my parents' home went under. It literally covered the top of the roof. Uh, so all of that kind of memorabilia went Completely, oh, the that's whole sort tragic. Of... But no reason not to put some nice, more recent photos, the grandkids and... Well... Um... 837 pages you've got here, Kerry. You could have fitted a couple of pictures. <laughs> a... you know, all, those, all those years in journalism, Corey, I, I never basically carried a camera. I mean, if, if the iPhone had been invented 50 years ago, you might have a few more. But um, did I miss opportunities? And I, was, I suppose I was just focused on what I was doing and I would have felt a bit of a klutz. Uh, asking uh, Nelson Mandela if he'd pose for a photo with me. You yeah. paint a, you paint a wonderful picture. This is a book that every journalist, young or old, should read. It, it's also a wonderful history of post World War Two Australia because, of course, it begins with your birth. You were born into the well, nineteen forty five, nineteen forty six. So that was where it begins. So it's a wonderful history of our country for the last half a century or more. But it's also a great book about journalism. And a great book about the ABC, which, of course, is the topic on everyone's lips at the moment. So we'll talk about it a bit more, Corrie, in BSF. We will, Carol. We've got a bit of, as usual, housekeeping to do and a little bit of feedback. Um, the Insta um, the Insta account, which is no longer Carol and Corrie, everyone, so stop following that one. Remember, I lost the password. It's Don't Shoot Pod. So it's at Don't Shoot Pod. Lots of comments on your race gear. 
Because I put up a photograph of Brendan and yourself. With the controversial hairband. Yes. Stroud, Stroud <laughs> underscore Lulu says, a headband looking good, girlfriend. <laughs> and, of course, we received lots of lovely comments about uh, last week's episode with Annabelle Crabb, our guest. Jill James on Facebook said, so good. My two favourite podcasts brought together. And, of course, she was referring to Annabelle's and Lee Sale's uh, wonderful podcast, Chat 10 Looks 3. And a very big welcome to a few chatterers who have come across and have discovered us. Welcome to the panel, ladies and gentlemen. And also on Instagram, at Shamozel said, this is just like when Richard Fadler interviewed Ira Glass, a complete podsgram. And now, Carol, you wouldn't know who Ira Glass is, but he is the most wonderful host of This American Life. I'm not sure I love you. This American Life is the only podcast I knew about before we did this one, Corrie. Caro, also just on housekeeping too, a reminder that our special podcast lunch at the Flying Duck in Paran is now booked out. We'd like to thank our sponsors, the Interchange Bench and also the Flying Duck and all of our Don't Shoot the Messengers who have gotten behind this wonderful Breast Cancer Network of Australia cause. We have sold out, potties. How well, popular are we? Well done, girls, and well done to the Interchange Bench and to the Flying Duck Hotel and to you, Corrie, for putting it together. Now, um... I just want to echo the words of our friend John Sylvester, the Sunday Age journalist, who commented recently that what happened in Melbourne last Friday was a, a great tragedy. And Brendan and I have, for many years, as you probably have too, Corrie, eaten, drunk coffee, bought mug, bought um, those wonderful, what are they? Um, Paninis. <laughs> at Pellegrini's restaurant. And when I found out on Saturday that it was dear Sisto who had been murdered by the terrorist who attacked that crazy guy who attacked Melbourne again last Friday. It was just such a terrible shock. And I can't think of a better person to deserve a state funeral. And state funerals don't happen as a matter of course, ever. And there've been some mistaken state funerals, some overplayed state funerals. I always wondered whether Ted Whitten should have received a state funeral. There's a story behind that we'll talk about another day. But anyway, um, John Sylvester made the point that in the end, Melburnians came out of this so well, I felt, and, and the fact that people ran towards that burning car and not away from it, and the fact that Sisto himself died, we think, because he was going forward to help the man who he thought was in trouble. And I've spoken to people who've worked in shops around there, and I think what happened in the, in the, in the days that followed was just so impressive and such a, it, it sounds corny, but good hopefully did triumph. Over evil. That doesn't probably help Sisto's family at the moment, all the people who were scared to go to work at that part of Burke Street. But it was such a, a true sort of comment. And similar to the um, Lynn Cafe attack in Sydney, it was a similar thing. And I just, I don't know what more we can say about it, except that I, I do think it, it said so much that people from Trolley Guy to Sisto, who tried to prevent something or tried to help and not run away, said so much about our city. And we're, we're, we're so cohesive here and, as you say, willing to help. Kerry, you've covered so many um, tragedies as a journalist over your 50-year career. And when things like this happen at home, like the Link Cafe siege and so on, what are your first reactions? I mean, do you kind of go into still journalism mode and become the detached observer? It's very hard not to be involved, isn't it? Well, the Lynn Cafe one uh, particularly so because uh, my first thought went to the fact that my son was working about two blocks away and uh, and when it is in your front yard, uh, those kinds of personal connections kick in one way or another. It just becomes that much more personal. It's a weird thing to try and uh, process and, uh, and sometimes journalists uh, who've learnt over the years to try and stand back from things and not get personally engaged and when something actually cuts through that protective space, it just hits you doubly hard. Yep. No, no, that's that's a, a wonderful point. Did your son get in touch with you? He did. Immediately? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So so you didn't have too long no, worrying about no, it? No, no. But, uh, but um, so you know, people kind of go into protective mode, don't they? They yep. sort of, it's not like, uh, it's not like they kind of roll up into a small ball and about protecting themselves, but they, they, they're mentally and, and instinctively, they're kind of searching the landscape to make sure that their own loved ones aren't affected. But I was interested to hear you talking about people's instinct to move forward rather than to move backwards. A wonderful uh, kind of thing to take away from a really bad moment. Particularly when had his plans been carried out, it could have been so much more destructive. Mm. Kerry, 
The ABC, of course, has become the story, and never more so than on Monday night. That that was just a riveting, riveting four corners. And sadly, the last one for the year. But boy, have they gone out on a high. They, they have gone out on a high. And, and, and j- just to mention a memoir again, I mean, to look back to some of your recollections and to think that there was a time when the 7.30 report had, I mean, almost forgotten that it had state-based programs and the staff that worked at the ABC and the amount of coverage that went on. I mean, it, it's just impossible to imagine that ABC now. Yeah, um, I mean, part of the part of the problem uh, that the ABC finds itself in is uh, is the problem that's besetting all media, and that is the the digital transformation that's taking place and the impact that that's having, and the confusion it's creating as uh, as people in leadership of the various media institutions try and take stock and work out where how they respond to it. I mean, the fact is we are now in an age where all media is meeting in the middle and uh, the various platforms and so on. Uh, but um, but I, uh, I think that the, the fundamental, uh, while we work out the implications of what this platform means over that platform and as far as print's concerned, you know, at what point do we stop printing newspapers and just rely entirely on the internet um, to deliver our product, um, I think we must never, ever, ever lose sight of what is at the heart of it all, and that is the content, and that's particularly so for television and for and for radio. And uh, and I I think that the ABC has been in danger at times of forgetting that. And I thought that when I talk about it in the book, I think that the way uh, Late Line was axed was a very short-sighted uh, decision on the part of ABC management because that really was... Uh, particularly in its early days when it was a single-issue format for a full half hour and you actually had the luxury in television, and time is always the luxury. You had the luxury of spending an entire half hour on a single issue and and for once you could actually get below the surface on it. And, uh, And because of the satellite, we had access to the great minds of the world. You know, we really did roam the world at night. And we're amazed constantly at the kinds of quality people and the and and the the best and the brightest who were prepared to actually come on and treat us seriously because we were a serious program, and the public response to that was fantastic, and that's lost. We know. we talked about this, Corrie, didn't we, when it was oh, axed last year? We were it lamenting was, it. Yes. It was like losing a wonderful intellectual friend that joined you every night as you were sort of getting ready to go to bed and make your cup of tea. We're going to bring forward Crush of the Week because, um, and, and we mentioned the Interchange Bench again, Corrie, which sponsors this program, specialists in temporary staffing and executive contracting. Visit interchangebench.com.au. It is a wonderful, wonderful initiative. But Kerry, something tells me that you might have a non-Crush of the Week and it does relate to the topic we're about to talk about. It wasn't hard to find. <laughs> there was the presence of Michelle Guthrie and, uh, and uh, Justin Milne on Four Corners on Monday night, and um, I don't want to detract from uh, Four Corners' success in actually persuading them to come on, but God, no, what, what on earth were what they, were they what, thinking? What were their lawyers <laughs> saying to them? What were their lawyers saying to them? There's litigation caught up in all this, and uh, and neither of them walked away from it well, and, uh, uh, and I just don't know what they thought they were going to achieve. I mean, the bottom line is that, that um, if neither of them was prepared to go on, uh, there wouldn't have even been a program, and they would uh, they wouldn't have been worse off as they are now. I don't think either of them was convincing, and um, I just wonder how much in their thoughts was the was was the fundamental, you know, their concern for the great institution of public broadcasting, the ABC. You mentioned earlier about uh, the digital world being the the new way forward for the ABC. Sometimes uh, content has been overlooked. Michelle Guthrie's credentials, of course, were uh, very much part of this. That was why she was brought on board. She'd had the experience with Google and then earlier with Rupert Murdoch's organisation. Was it a good appoint? Was it seen as a good appointment at the time? Well, look, I, I I basically left pretty much as she arrived, so I can't talk personally about it. But I've I've had my insights from others who've worked in the who still work in the place, and also what I've absorbed in the media myself. Uh, I mean. Uh, nobody would deny that um, that the ABC faces a massive challenge, as it has been doing now for about the last decade, in terms of managing and getting through the impact of uh, of the digital age. Um, it's one thing to come in 
with an agenda for change. But if you are going to significantly shake up the whole structure of uh, that complex beast, which is the ABC, then you'd better also have the capacity to bring the staff with you and to be able to explain to them the rationale behind what you're doing. And I think it's pretty clear, even from Michelle Guthrie's performance last night, and I, I don't, I'm not kicking someone while they're down. I thought the way that whole process of her departure was handled was appalling. But, um, but she does have to look in the mirror and face up to the question of whether she was really up to the mark as a leader, implementing enormous change, which was affecting every life in the place, as well as its very large and very loyal audience base. And I think she fell short of the mark. Um, but then, of course, you come to the issue of the board and its chair. And, uh, by you know, we, we can make a, a clear judgment about uh, Justin Mill's position because he resigned too. And there is now the question of whether the board, uh, of the board's situation and all this, but fundamentally, with, a, uh, with such a hostile government in play, uh, with these endless inquiries that keep being thrown at the ABC, with the rounds of budget cut after budget cut, and the sniping uh, and the complaints going on endlessly, uh, it's just an outrage to me and, uh, and shows a deep insensitivity to how highly regarded the ABC is in the broad Australian community, including many of this government's own constituents. Kerry, Corrie, I found it hard to believe a word either of them were saying. Mm. I mean, they, they, neither lo- was a credible witness. No, but I mean, obviously, often the truth in your own mind is the truth and you don't really remember what the real truth is. But there were so many times when... I found Michelle's testimony to what happened. I mean, they were so diametrically opposed for a start. I found it hard to believe Justin Milne's insistences that he hadn't spoken to key politicians, Malcolm Turnbull down. I found it so hard to believe her version of events on several issues. And then out of the blue came the Me Too moment of the hand on the back at Billy Kwong's at the at the dinner. I mean, was that something that was well known among ABC staff before it was revealed on Monday night? Well, just remember that I'm a couple of steps back from it all. I know. I'd certainly heard nothing along those lines. Uh, And uh, it seems to me it came as a uh, surprise to many people, including, given their response, the board, the other board members who were at the dinner, which doesn't mean it didn't happen. No. We're just in no position to judge. and, And you don't walk away from that Four Corners program uh, feeling any confidence that you can make judgments uh, about what you believe and what you don't believe from either of those two protagonists. It's a very it's a very unfortunate situation and the ABC and its staff do not deserve it. Kerry, one of the telling points on he said, she said, and it reminded me a bit of uh, the most excellent coverage after Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard, uh, when Gillard, after Gillard rolled Rudd and the ABC did terrific coverage on that and you're listening to all sides talk about the same event, you know, what happened in the room. And the other night they were talking about, um, Sarah Ferguson asked them about the um, the, the proposed sacking of Emma Alberici. Mm. And Milne said, um, when asked, did Guthrie take part in discussions about Alberici? Milne said, absolutely. And Guthrie said, no. Mm. <laughs> I, what what you do we make of that? How do, well, how do you we, can't you can't really go can't anywhere go any unless further. there is some other corroborative evidence for one or other of them. I mean, I suppose it's like two people in a courtroom, um, vehemently, um, ve- vehemently uh, in opposition to what the other is, contradictory of what the other is saying, and then then it gets down to trying to work out well who is the more believable of the two, and that's where you struggle. And at this stage, there's no new chairman. There's only an acting chairman, David Anderson. Of course, he's the acting CEO. We're not going to know until February, March next year who is going to be, in fact, in fact, leading the ABC. It's a, it's a very, very unattractive set of circumstances. But the people who've come out of this, well, Sarah Ferguson's come out. Of, she would have been better off running the ABC, I reckon, <laughs> after watching the well, other night. She did say it was could, the, could... the strangest assignment she'd ever had. She said that at the beginning of the show. Mm. Would you have agreed with that, Kerry, if you'd been given that brief? Well, I... Um... I uh, interviewed Jonathan Shire in the 7.30 era and uh, my 7.30 era. And, you and, write and, really well about his era too in the book. But yes, well, there was certainly plenty to work with. Um, <laughs> Jonathan Shire, for those who don't remember, was, uh, was appointed managing director of the ABC by a board that had been significantly set in place by the Howard government. Uh, Donald MacDonald was the chair of the board. 
He was a good friend of John Howard's. Michael Kroger was on the board. He was a good friend of Peter Costello's. Um, uh, Jonathan Shire uh, set about uh, implementing the changes that he thought were necessary in the place. Uh, but, uh, but to the staff, it was a little bit like watching a bull in a china shop. And, uh, and to the extent that we fundamentally disagreed with uh, many of the things he was seeking to do, and as he was uh, sacking staff, uh, he was expanding the senior management and uh, uh, extensively. So while there was a big redundancy bill and people were personally suffering as they walked out the door, there were all these new managers running around the place who were who were swelling uh, the the executive salaries no end. But but even uh, I think five of his twelve hand-picked senior executives had either been sacked or had walked within 12 months. And, uh, and so uh, there was enormous uh, instability in the place. And, uh, and uh, accurately or not, there were wide, widely held assumptions that he was acting on a brief from those anti-ABC forces inside the government who wanted to see the culture ripped up. And so, so uh, to actually have him on the program, uh, given that he was making rather hostile and for some people intimidating comments about what he thought of the 7.30 report and by implication me and I was reading stories with headlines that said dead man talking (laughs) and my boss Paul Williams who was the head of news and current affairs was dead man walking. Um, We're both doing quite well thank you very much Um, but but um, that was a strange experience but but uh, but so so you work out when you 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 avoid the sense of self-indulgence uh, by walking the straight line, by treating it like any other story or, in my case, any other interview. And then you know that you're judged by the audience. Yes. There you judge. Can I just send a cheerio oh, and a yes. thank you to the Interchange Bench? If your business needs new players, pick them up from the Interchange Bench, the leading provider of temporary and contract talent. See interchangebench.com.au. You will not find Kerry O'Brien sitting there on the bench because he's very happily retired now in Byron Bay. Half your luck, Kerry. But for talent so good, you'd wish you can keep them. Call the interchange bench. And that was Kerry O'Brien's non-crush of the week. We're playing with the format here a bit. But yes, as you said, let's skip on to books. Kerry, your most wonderful AIM memoir, $44.99, published by Alan and Unwin. You're a Queensland boy, one of four children to Lotta and Jack, to whom you actually dedicate the book. And your first job is as a filing clerk in the Queensland Public Curator's Office. That sounds like the most boring job, almost as boring as when I worked at The Age in their photo sales department when I was 15, just cutting up negatives and putting them in plastic bags. I still have a suspicion that the ambience around you might have been a little more exciting than mine. (laughs) But when did the journalism bug bite and why? Well, um, look, it had been kind of hanging in the background, but uh, my father desperately wanted me to be a lawyer. The... uh, the rather whimsical um, vocational guidance person who roamed through our school briefly and said, uh, what are you good at? And I said, well, I'm not bad at English. And he said, well, you could either be a journalist or a school teacher and uh, wafted off. Uh, so I um, I applied for a cadetship at the Courier Mail and at the ABC uh, and neither were interested and I don't blame them. I was 17 and probably looked about 12 uh, and did not have a great uh, school history. I was certainly not um, I was certainly not a very attentive student, and nor was I a very good student as far as the brothers were concerned. But um, but uh, my father, uh, after giving up on the law, and my mother expressing her horror at the possibility that I might end up as a plumber, sorry plumbers, <laughs> um, uh, he rang an old mate of his who had been a Sydney Morning Herald correspondent in New Guinea in the war. Harry Summers was his name, but he'd become a rather... Um, uh, meek and mild old guy, uh, a bachelor, um, who uh, who actually got me entree to do weekend work at Channel 9 in Brisbane. I was about 20 by then. Had really lost my way. I was really drifting. And uh, walked through the doors of the Channel 9 newsroom. I think there were four full-time journalists, maybe five at the time. Uh, and uh, my main job was listening to the police, the illegal police radio. And I just loved the idea that I was allowed to do something illegal for a start. Um, and uh, and uh, it was magic. You know, the, the adrenaline of it, you just picked up of everyone else's adrenaline. I got caught up in the chase and the hunt and the, and the competition with your rivals and watching stuff go to air and looking at the 
at the way people work together to produce the product and just the overall excitement of it. Um, but uh, Harry, Summers, Harry Summers' advice to my father uh, a year or so later when I was being, I was, I'd already become very restless and turned my eyes south of the border to Sydney. And Dad said, uh, Dad asked Harry what he thought about this and Harry said, oh, Jack, Jack, don't let him go. It's a jungle down there. <laughs> and I look back and I think, this poor bugger. Spent serious time in New Guinea with the Japanese, uh, one of the worst parts of the, the whole of the Second World War, telling people that Sydney was a jungle. <laughs> well, the, the book, it, it, you navigate through, there's a lot of humour, starting with the first line, really, and insisting that your hair is real and you were born that way and no no wig. And Did women really come up to you? Did a journalist really actually inspect your hair roots? Absolutely she did. <laughs> The killer tomato. Um, <laughs> that, I mean, I, I reckon I've been a pretty good journalist and a tough journalist at times, but <laughs> I cannot imagine going up to someone and, A, not believe, as you said, well, I think you've got lovely hair. But, oh, thank you, Caroline. But, but I do think oh, it's I did true. that once to Phyllis Diller because she oh. was actually wearing a wig. And, I, and, I, and she made a comment about the wig and I said, oh, that's, that's your real hair. And she said, honey, come and touch it. And I pulled it and I almost pulled the wig off. So. So, look, you are sometimes allowed to touch people's hair. And there are, there are, well, look, there are moments of great sadness. I mean, your your regret over not having that final cup of coffee with Andrew Ollie before his death after mm. you got the job that perhaps he would have expected, taking yeah. over the National 7.30 report. Yeah. Um, much, much sadder, the loss of your dear brother, Tony. Uh, Paul. Paul, I'm sorry. That's I'm very right. no, sorry no, about Paul, that. Uh, Tony's still going. And, and and wonderful stories about your brothers all the way through, but obviously in his battle with mental illness and your parents' great sadness about that. I mean, it's, there, there's so much sadness and so much happiness in this book. Um, what, as a journalist, what left me really, I suppose not regret is the wrong word, but your utter frustration towards the end of getting anything intelligent or meaningful out of politicians in interviews it, it's just so disappointing, isn't it? And if someone like you, and and you said even when you had twenty five minutes at times, you you felt frustrated. But in the end, and and now they they use the sound bites, don't they? Mm. To the, the time to get oh, their message across. So many, so many aspects to this, Caroline. I mean the uh, this the twenty four hour churn and and the the way politicians. Um, are constantly learning and seeking and working out ways to exp- i don't i don't mind politicians working out the most effective way to use the media if they're talking about communicating policy and if they're having genuine political debates on important issues uh, rather than just sniping at each other uh, or just working out the message of the day but the latter is more likely than the former and uh and it really had become Groundhog Day for me by the time I walked away from 7.30. And uh, it's a sad, sad comment on the state of politics, not just here, but throughout the democratic world. And there's a lot going on that we need to be concerned about. Somebody asked, or several people have asked me, um, um, knowing that I'd interviewed Obama, uh, how I'd go about interviewing uh, Donald McDonald, uh, Donald, <laughs> Donald McDonald, <laughs> Donald Trump. And uh, and I have no, I, I don't think for a second in, in answering that, I wouldn't touch that interview with a barge pole. I would not consider it for a second. What would be the point? I mean, uh, the man is, is not only um, uh, uh, a thug, uh, he is a, um, a deeply divisive human being. Um, uh, he exploits um, issues like racism uh, to the hilt. Uh, he's very much a reflection of that kind of shock jock uh, approach to life, which is that you look for those areas where you can divide rather than unite. Divide and rule, black and white, everything's simple, there are no complexities, uh, and the man just lies in his teeth. Why would you bother doing an interview with somebody like that? Because it, it would only be for the spectacle, you know, and, uh, and by your second question he's shouting at you, and by the third question he's ordering you out. I mean, what's the point? Kerry, you've, you have so many recollections of interesting, extraordinary and less interesting conversations with politicians. 
But one of the sub, one of the chapters I love, given my love of the celebrity, is the chapter called Real Celebrity. And you reflect on the interviews and you've actually incorporated some of the dialogue between yourself and people like um, Nelson Mandela and Bruce Springsteen, Tim Winton, uh, Michael Palin. There's a cast of thousands. And, that, and it's one of my favourite chapters, actually, oh, when you, you go off script, which is the script off we beast. know. <laughs> well, we know that you're – yeah, exactly. We know that you're Kerry O'Brien, you know, the hard-hitting political uh, interviewer. But these were such tender moments. That change of pace when you, when you had the opportunity, what did that afford you as a journalist? Well, for a start, they were the things that kept me sane and kept me going at 7.30 for longer than I otherwise might have. Um, and, uh, and the reason I called it real celebrity is because there is so much bullshit celebrity in the world. Um, and, and this is real celebrity in the sense that it is we're talking about people who are to be celebrated because they have done things worthy of celebration. So they are real celebrities. And, uh, and I suppose uh, what I've tried to do, looking at that, ray, that, that kind, quite eclectic range of people across the arts, um, the, the writers, the performers, the singers, the, the comedians, uh, and the scientists. I mean, people like Oliver Sacks. I mean, God. I well, you, have, about, a, you I, have a lovely section there where you refer to, you reflect on death which is in the middle of the book, not at the end, which is what most, most autobiographers do. And you refer to Oliver Sacks's view on this, and I found that an incredibly moving, and it almost was, um, given your strong family Catholic background, it was almost religious, actually, in a way. Yeah. I felt that was a terrific well, couple of pages. Uh, he was such an impressive character. He had such an imagination, very bright man, but such humanity. And, uh, and I interviewed him, I think, five times over the years. I interviewed him for Late Line and I interviewed him again for 7.30 and I would have interviewed him every year if I could have. Um, and his, his books, you know, this man was a psychiatrist um, dealing with mental illness uh, but managed, managing to make it vivid. And he was, seeing, he was seeing merit where other people saw reasons to ostracise or be fearful of. Uh, he saw... He saw wonderful things. He saw attributes that no other people saw, and he wrote about them brilliantly. Uh, so I loved interviewing him, and, and that was the point. I mean, I could interview, I can remember uh, interviewing James Taylor, and uh, his minders had wanted me to interview him with Carol King because they were coming out to do a concert together. And, of course, the only reason I got access to a lot of these people was because they wanted to promote why they were here, whether it was a book, a film, or a concert. And I said, well, actually, I interviewed Carol King a few years ago. I'd rather just interview James Taylor. No, no, you must do them both. And I said, well, I'm terribly sorry. They came back and said, okay, well, you can have James, but you can't talk about drugs. And I said, well, I'm sorry. I haven't even begun to think what I'll talk about, but you can't restrict it like that. So if that's what it has to be, I'll pass again. So they came back and said, yes, you can interview him. And, uh, and, and he raised the drugs before I did. Uh, wonderful, wonderful interview, uh, I, for me, in my terms, I loved it uh, because he was so candid, um, so evocative, so articulate. Uh, and uh, this is a guy who, uh, in the in the mid Beatles days, as a young musician, he walks through the door of was it Apple Studios uh, uh, um, in uh, in London, Abbey Road, uh, and he's in the next studio recording while the Beatles are recording next door and occasionally they come in and play with him. Um, but he was also a depressive and he was self-medicating and one of his self-medications was heroin. And we talked about that and, uh, and, and he, he uh, articulated how debilitating it came, became for him and how his world shrank to the point where he felt like he was on the head of a pin, that he was so small. And he was using this kind of terminology and he was explaining why drugs in the end for him... Um, were a giant negative, and that he was it was he was amazed that he'd survived and um, uh, and at the end, he shook my hand warmly, and I thought how silly for these people to be so defensive about this stuff, but you know th those uh, those interviews one of the patterns that comes out when you go back after a long time and you look at all these things, one pattern that emerged uh, was the number of these people who suffered depression to one degree or another, the number of them who self-medicated. Um, Robin Williams, what a beautiful man and what an extraordinarily talented man. 
Um, but again, sits down in the room and he gives. He gives. Yes, he's there to promote a concert. But but the, I, I found that when they saw that you'd come prepared and you were reflecting, I hope, thoughtfulness in the questions, they soon mostly relaxed into it and suddenly you're having a real conversation. Those were the things I enjoyed. Before we continue BSF, Corey, I just refer everyone to page 773 and that incredibly prophetic interview with Malcolm Turnbull the first time around, um, basically talking about why Kevin Rudd failed and how he left with nothing. And you could insert Malcolm Turnbull with Kevin Rudd in that interview. It is just unbelievable how um, the lack of self-awareness by Malcolm Turnbull is just remarkable. And on a personal note, your, your piece, and it's amazing he's still alive because I felt he was going to die any minute in the in the show, but the the, the special you did with Clive James, it's oh, one yeah. of the great pieces of television I've ever seen. And you, if you want to understand Clive James and, and his history and his writing, oh, clearly there was a deep personal connection there. It was just wonderful. It was, uh, it was a very laboured thing to do because we did it over six hours. We recorded not much more than an hour. and, and, and Well, no, we recorded an hour and a half and the whole hour and a half should have gone to air. Uh, an hour went to air, but it took six hours because of his emphysema and his various other ailments. He's, he's permanently on serious drugs for... Uh, um, he had um, leukaemia, amongst other things. And, of course, uh, he's been predicting his imminent, imminent death for about four years now, <laughs> and he's still including going. including that interview, and I, I felt we were in the middle of a requiem uh, with him still living. But uh, and and certainly the laboured way he was getting around and his breathing and and, and his energy, you know, he had very low energy. Uh, but, but what it a incredible what a, what a honesty great... about the victims of his own brilliance, really, that he mm. left behind. Yes, and uh, he's talking about fame um, uh, and television. And the mask that hides the face. Um, a great way with words, uh, wonderfully read uh, and autodidact. Uh, and, uh, and he's obsessively writing this poetry now, which is being very widely acclaimed by serious critics. Um, and, uh, and one day, one day, hopefully not for a long while, but one day he'll actually die. And, uh, and we'll all be surprised because we've got so used to him predicting it for so well, long. Well, thank God the ABC does have a digital department. Thank you, Michelle Guthrie, for that because we can all access those wonderful interviews mm. and also that great series you did with Paul Keating who popped up on my television set last night on the 7.30. He has, he has a habit of doing that, doesn't he? <laughs> I, it's, just, it's like Father Christmas comes again. You just go, oh, there you are. <laughs> uh, no, no, it's like tap, tap, I'm still here. Watch out. Now, Corrie, you've, you're going to tell us about the series two of Victoria, which I has started on the ABC. Su- super quick, um, Kerry, I'm sure you and Sue are tuning into this one uh, when you get a spare night together, when you're not on book tour. Look, I love Saturday night at home with the ABC, and of course I was looking forward to Doc Martin, yet another repeat, but who cares. <sighs> Poured the glass of wine and thought, what's on? And of course it was Port the Wen. Sick- no. <laughs> Well, I was off to Victoria in England, and this is the second series, and it was the second show. So, of course, I then, you know, did the ABC iView thing and watched the first one. This second series of Victoria once again stars the beautiful Jenna Coleman, who I think is way too beautiful to be playing Queen Victoria because she was a bit of a, um, you know, frumpy old thing toward the end there. And Tom Hughes as Albert. And, of course, the wonderful Rufus Sewell, who I have a big crush on, plays Lord Melbourne, somewhat convincingly, unconvincingly. That's for the critics to decide. But, of course, the whole... My prim- mother insists he's far too young for Lord far Melbourne. Far too young. That's exactly time. right, yep. but still a yep. great actor. Uh, but this one is, um, to set it up for Series 2... She says to Melbourne at one stage, to be a queen, I must rule, yet to be a wife, it seems, I must submit. And this is the sort of the tenor of series two. She's having children. Almost every episode, there's a new child arrives. And of course, Albert is still trying to find his role. Where, what is his role here and, and what's his contribution that he can make to the greater British good? It's a terrific series. I commend it highly. It, it does get a bit schmaltzy at times with the love scenes. Um, but if he drops to his knee one more time and kisses her hand and tells her how much he loves her, I think I'll just probably throw a slipper at the television. But it is a great show. 7.30 ABC Saturday Nights. That is Victoria. And Carol, you have your curry recipe. She has to be one of the more fascinating characters of the last two or three hundred years, Queen Victoria, and they keep reinventing her. And some of the books, including the most recent one by the Australian author, Julia 
Baird is just fabulous. Brilliant. Anyway, she, was a, she was a brilliant strategist, actually, Queen Victoria. All the marriages and mixing all the bloodlines of Europe, she was very smart at that. And can I just very boldly interrupt before the curry? <laughs> but uh, the second time I interviewed Margaret Thatcher, uh, she'd written her autobiography and, uh, and she talked. She wanted to return England to Victorian times. She, she pined for the days of the vigorous virtues, as she called them, <laughs> where, where um, unmarried mums uh, were kept in, uh, in institutions uh, run by churches and their childs were looked after for them while they were forced out to work to earn their keep. And she pined for the return to those days and, away, f- and away from the times when, uh, when all those nasty homeless people who'd been thrown out of work uh, because of her reforms, and were expecting some kind of welfare payment. <laughs> I'll just I'll just grab my jet beads now and oh. ring my, ring them around my neck. Well, what is your curry? This is from yet another book, one of our favourites, the Monday Morning Cooking Club. That wonderful group of Sydney women who have put out a few cookbooks. Now, this is from their first one, Corrie. It's their South Indian fish curry. Um, All the ingredients and steps will be in the show notes, but this is one you can make in advance. You make the coconut milk base, which you cook, and that involves tomato, coconut milk, etc., garlic and onion, and you make a paste, both of which you can do in the Nutribullet or the Maggi mix. You can do it the day before. 750 grams of good firm white fish. I use ling fillets. The actual cooking process takes about less than half an hour. These are the spices and curry ingredients you will need. Fernacreek, brown mustard seeds, ground cumin, ground coriander and turmeric. You did all of that without looking at your notes. <laughs> I've made it twice in the last oh week. Oh my lord, you're To good. much acclaim and it serves six and it'll all be in the show notes. Use light coconut milk. It is an absolute winner. And I'm going to move on to grumpy straight away. I'll tell you what I'm grumpy about. What has happened to our society that it's too much of an effort to vote on actual election day? I think to bring forward this voting to two weeks before the actual election just doesn't feel right to me. For a start, we've got this Greens candidate who is an absolute nutter. If you listen to some of the rap tunes he was putting out a few years ago. We're talking Victorian politics here. Potties and Kerry from Interstate. Yeah, but I mean... She's on a a rant. I dare not engage. I used to love the collegiate atmosphere of election day. I mean, people are saying, oh, but it's such an effort to get out on a Saturday and vote on that day. What if I understand postal voting. I understand you're going away. I even understand a week before the election, but two weeks before, it is ridiculous. Nance, can I just say, while you were swanning around doing your Ollie lecture up in Sydney, we did actually discuss this particular issue with Anna from the Oppie and it's her husband, Brendan, now. and we, did, we all lamented, like, why can't you just go down to the local primary school and have your sausage and away you go. Sure, you've got a view on this, Kerry. Well, I would just remind those people who complain about the fact that we have compulsory voting that they don't have compulsory voting in America and they've got Donald Trump. Exactly. My point. Rah, rah, compulsory voting. I couldn't agree more, Kerry. You and I could go off and have a drink and discuss this further. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) We've got a few quick questions, six actually, and Kerry, your first one is to Kerry. Oh, I just want to ask about the sea change and living in Byron Bay. Has well, it been a good move? Absolutely. And can we come to it? <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. Uh, we, we had been talking about it for a while. We were both at a stage uh, in our lives. Sue was a journalist. Uh, and we'd both reached the stage pretty much at the same point where we wanted, we wanted out of Sydney. Uh, we wanted to walk away from the structured existence we were leading. Um, we wanted to give ourselves uh, a chance to freshen up a bit and maybe think of other things. And, uh, and we had, uh, both, we'd worn a path to Queensland via Byron, uh, over many years because both our parents and family were up there. Uh, we had friends there, uh, that seemed, uh, an obvious place to think about easy commuting. Uh, we've been there eight years now and we've never had a moment's regret. I mean, oh. we, most of our kids are in Sydney. Kerry, um, it's Carol and my dream. We love Byron Bay. In fact, I shouldn't say that too loudly because everybody will want to go and live there. Brunswick <laughs> Heads, New Brighton, Cabarita, that whole we, area. Is... We do see a lot of Victorians. <laughs> they mostly have a smile on their faces. How funny that. Well, I, I have I spotted you in Espresso Head having a coffee <laughs> or a breakfast and been desperate to come up and introduce myself, but haven't. Well, but, now you won't be able to hide. But I love I the bet fact you that get you've, a lot got, of you've gone up there to relax and you've written an 800 plus page yeah, book. But, but that was part of the process of working out what we really wanted to do. And, uh, I mean, I did the Keating 
in, in those five years when we first went up there, so I was commuting di- weekly to Sydney to do Four Corners. When I say do Four Corners, my contribution was small compared to what the others were doing. But, uh, but uh, in that period, I started and really completed the Keating Project as the interview series and then the book. Um, and, uh, and that kind of opened the way in my mind to seriously consider what became this memoir. And, uh, and while it's been uh, a big challenge and, and it's taken all of my efforts of uh, discipline, something I certainly didn't have in my early years, um, that still means that I've got a nicely unstructured life around that existence. And, uh, and if I choose to write between three and seven in the morning and do something else during the day, well, I can do that. Um, and uh, and so I I think that um, Sue and I have found a really nice space. Oh, we're in coming, that kind we're of coming to visit you. <laughs> uh, next question to you, Caro. TV personality Carl Stefanovic is hiring a personal reputation manager. Good move or bad move? I think if you're going to hire a personal reputation manager, no one should know about it. The fact that we know about it tells me that it's a really bad move. It's like when you hire a public relations advisor and they're standing there and everyone knows you've got him. They're meant to be a secret. (laughs) (laughs) Dumb, dumb, dumb. Corrie, can you explain the great Bunnings sausage sizzle drama? Yeah, look, it's come out that um, Bunnings are now watching all of those community groups that hold a sausage sizzle outside their Bunnings every weekend to make sure that they put the onions under the sausage instead of on top (laughs) because apparently when the onions are on top, they slip out of the roll and there is a health hazard to people who may slip on it and break some bone in their body. To everyone whose husband comes home from Bunnings and doesn't seem as hungry as they should be for lunch. <laughs> well, the onion, is, the onion clearly is on, is on <laughs> the... Kerry's got his hand up. The onion clearly is on the footpath somewhere. Um, <laughs> Kerry, of all the celebrities you've interviewed, and most of whom uh, do, as I said, receive a special mention in your memoir, who would you most like to sit next to at a dinner party? Uh, well, a lot of them, really. I'd, I'd want to put a few of them together, but I actually once um, expressed this view. Uh, Bette Midler. Oh, one. yes, we love Bet. Uh, I'd be there too, there in Byron just... Bay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was just, uh, she was wonderful. And um, again, so often these people come with uh, with a whole retinue of minders and she seemed to have a, a lot of women in pinstripe suits milling around. And, uh, and despite the fact that they were keen to get her on to her next thing, uh, we spoke for about 20 minutes before, the, before we even got round to the interview. And then as soon as the interview was over, we were straight back into another deep conversation and she's got a lot of things to say that are interesting. Very bright, very well-informed, very engaged woman. And I just thought in that moment, and I almost did it and I wish I had, uh, it would have been an inevitable knockback simply because of the way their lives are structured. But I just thought for one moment what a great idea it would be to say to her, if you really want to meet and engage with some Australians, why don't I just throw a small discreet dinner party and invite... Say eight Caro people. and Corey. Yes, you that's right. I Carey. know I, sh- I know I should have, and I didn't, and it's a mild regret. And the answer probably would have been no, but would have been nice to have done, wouldn't it? Oh, you never know. I, I love. Thought you were going to say you wanted to break out into song with her and sing <laughs> "You Are the Wings Beneath My Wings." One of my favourite um, lines of hers is when she said to Jack Nicholson when she had that TV show, "You must come on my show." And Jack Nicholson said, "I don't do television." And she said, "Jack, you don't do television yet." <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'll ask you the least: Who would you least like at the dinner party? Oh, Donald Trump. <laughs> but you haven't interviewed him. No. Oh, I see. Of those I've interviewed. Yeah. Ah. Um, well, that's a hard one. God, who was the guy? He was directing Black Hawk Down, but he'd done he'd done Blade Runner director. Oh, Ridley, 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 Scott. Ridley Scott. I interviewed Ridley Scott, and uh, again, he was looking for a sort of patsy interview to promote Black Hawk Down, and there was some controversy about it, which I pursued in my own gentle way, and uh, he didn't like that at all. Um, because it related to um, allegations or suggestions that he had manipulated things, he'd manipulated the facts in a way that suited uh, what he wanted out of the film. But um, uh, there was a there was a kind of sense of entitlement, not just crankiness, but sense of entitlement and arrogance that, to me, came through that. Um, left me feeling fine about ending the interview. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't <laughs> want to have dinner with him. Carol, I have a GLT, which I just want to share very quickly. Uh, 
your, all your roses are coming out now, potties. Your gardens look amazing. And then, of course, come the middle of January and early February, it's looking a bit tired. It is okay to prune again, a summer prune, and then you get an early autumn blush, Caro. So I would just be suggesting after the first flush of brooms, deadhead, remove dead wood, shape the bush, give it a prune. And if you're not sure what to do, I found a rather charming chap called Curtis Smith, who is an American horticulturist. He has a YouTube on how to prune roses in summer. There you go. Um, thank you, Kerry, for joining us today for our uh, funny little um, Don't Shoot the Messenger. It seems so small compared to your vast career. But oh, rubbish. <laughs> rubbish. It's well, been an absolute treat. I've enjoyed thank it. you. And yeah. the book is too. Yes, well. Kerry O'Brien, a memoir. As I said, forty four ninety nine at all good bookstores near you, including my own bookshop, which Kerry has visited with I have. your friend and our friend Kate. Yeah. Um, thank you for joining us, everybody. I do have to put in a bit of a plug for episode four of the book pod, where I interviewed journalist, feminist and writer Anne Summers. Boy, oh boy, it was that a fun hour and a bit. And there's a bit of naughty blue talk at the end of it too, which I didn't realise Jane <laughs> was, was taping. <laughs> Please subscribe to the book pod, everyone, and also please uh, share Don't Shoot the Messenger with your friends and um, tell your family and friends, of course, to join us. Your word-of-mouth recommendations and your ratings are the best publicity ever. And for details of everything that we've discussed on the show and how to get in touch with us, check out the show notes in your podcast app. Thanks again, Kerry. Uh, all the best with your tour. Hope the voice gets better. And, Caro, what do we say? Don't shoot the messenger, Corey. <laughs> Thanks to both of you. Hi, I'm Anne Summers. I hope you can join Corey Perkin and I on the book pod. There's definitely a new way. We've gone from that period during the 90s of I'm not a feminist, but now everyone's a feminist. And it maybe it's diluted. <laughs> what do you mean by that? I mean, if, if Rihanna and Beyonce and every politician you can think of is calling themselves a feminist, what does that mean? And what do they mean when they say that? And this to me was the most extraordinarily glamorous and sophisticated thing you know, that I could possibly imagine. And the notion that a single woman um, had the money and the freedom to do something like that was, you know, it just opened my eyes and it made me realise that I wasn't bound to the choices that my family and that my school had tried to impose on me and I realised there were other ways. So Don Watson, your mate, rings up. He's acting as speechwriter for Paul Keating, the then Prime Minister, and says... Paul's got a bit of a problem with women. I love that. <laughs> we do love the way Don talks. And the lawyers tried to take that out. They're saying, you know, that we, you know, we don't want to imply that, that, you know, that Paul Keating is sexually harassing or something. I said, no one's going to think that. I mean, it's quite obvious. We get it because it's the way Australians talk. Yes. And also, if you know Don Watson. And you also, know the, the context is quite clear. We're talking about a political problem. We're talking about a gender gap. I'm Ann Summers. Join me on the book pod. Subscribe to the book pod wherever you can listen to podcasts.